1: Glad to have you with us for Political Rewind today. I'm Bill Nygut. We've got so much to talk about: national news, state news, uh, cartoon news. Kevin <laughs> Riley, the editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, is with us today, and he was in the paper himself today. Kevin Riley, you took swift action to exorcise a cartoonist who left uh, a hidden but legible message that was not. Uh, Kind to President Trump in papers all over the country. 700 of them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh,
2: So that cartoonist and his work will not be in our newspaper anymore. And we're hoping to, maybe even yet today, let readers know who... We'll replace it. Oh. I think they'll be very interested. Wanna,
1: you want to do that before the end of Political Rewind today? If
2: I possibly can. I'm in contact with right. the office, Bill, and if we can do that, we will.
1: You know, Lori Geary is here. Lori, of course, former political reporter at uh, WSB-TV Channel 2. Uh, used to be a Cox TV station. Pretty soon it won't be anymore, Lori. Uh <laughs> that. And two other things to say about Lori. Number one, she is now a panelist on uh, Fox 5's uh, Georgia Gang, which is on at 8.30 on Sunday mornings. What's nice about the timing of that show, Laurie, is that people can tune in To see you at 8.30. And they can still switch their channel over to GPB TV (laughs) to see Political Rewind on TV at 9 o'clock.
3: Yes, we are a good (laughs) warm-up act for you.
1: (laughs) And you've also started working with a great public affairs group led by uh, Democrat Billy Linville.
3: Mm -hmm. And uh, Brian Tolleson as well started Lexicon Strategies. A lot of communication strategy, video production. Um, It's just really fun. It's a great group to
1: work with. Good, good. There is. You and I have both learned there's a life after being a Channel 2 political reporter. There
3: really is. (laughs) And it's a lot of fun.
1: Next to uh, you in the studio, Leo Smith. He's a Republican strategist, former uh, minority outreach director of the Georgia Republican Party. You had a candidate in the 7th District congressional race back uh, in 2018 and uh, continue to do political
0: consulting. Right, Leo? That is correct, and uh, continue to do a little consulting, heading to D.C. soon for the Black History Month event that President Trump is putting on.
1: It'll be interesting to learn more about what Mm -hmm. that's going to be all about. Mm -hmm. Also with us, uh, Alan Abramowitz. Um, Alan, of course, is uh, one of the best-known political science professors at Emory University, the author of numerous books. Your most recent book, I think the most recent one, was The Great Alignment, It is. That's right. Race. Party transformation
4: Race, party. and the rise of Donald Trump,
1: um, and we <coughs> should say, in introducing you, in terms of that book, you have for quite a while now, and we probably talk about this today, been documenting what's essentially the disappearance of the middle and the <coughs> hardening of of polarities uh, and and partisan uh, lines.
4: Exactly, and. Uh... So the book takes that up through the 2016 election. And uh, I think I can say that uh, since then, we've seen that continue.
1: Uh, we should also, as long as we're talking with an Emory professor, point out that Emory today announced who your graduation speaker is going right. to be. And we're, it's really wonderful to hear who it is. Andrew, right. Andrew Young yeah. is going to be giving oh, the commencement great. address. Yeah, that's terrific. I all right.
4: I, I think everyone's happy about that.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, all right. We can, you can, by the way, watch yeah. us by uh, going to the uh, GPB uh Page GPB news page on Facebook live, and you can leave your comments there. So many of you do, and you can also tweet us at politics GPB. All right, let's get going. Uh, Kevin, we learned late last night that the conference committee uh, in Washington, uh, assigned to try to figure out a compromise of some sort on the border security measure, did in fact reach a deal. Which uh, we're still waiting to hear more about from the president, but at least they've moved forward. Yeah. Right. I mean, they
2: have a deal and I guess they call it a deal in principle. But the president's first remark about
1: it was, quote, he is not happy with yeah, it. He's not happy. He said during a uh, a scrum at, in the cabinet room this late this morning, we're adding things to it. So apparently the president is still... Looking at talking, I assume, Laurie, to Republican leaders about what he might uh, be able to to get.
3: Well, he said he's not happy, but he also said that he doesn't expect another showdown. And if there shut is down, one yeah. or shutdown, yeah, there is a showdown. But <laughs> um, but if there is a shutdown, he would blame the Democrats.
1: Of course. <laughs> Alan, the deal, the tentative deal calls for basically $1.4 billion in additional physical <clears throat> barriers. They never want to call it a wall, the right. Democrats. Uh, that's like 55 miles right. of walls. The president, of course, wanted $5.7 billion and at least 200 miles of additional right. walls. So uh, in some ways, the president is getting less than what he was offered before the shutdown that lasted for 35 days. That's exactly correct. He's getting less than what he
4: could have gotten before the shutdown. Um, And now they have to figure out some way that he can claim that this is a victory. Um, He's getting a lot of flack from the far right right now on this. He's being attacked by some of the pundits. He's being attacked by Mark Meadows, the head of the Congressional Freedom Caucus. Uh, They don't like it. They're calling it a terrible deal. Um, So we'll see if Trump is able to accept this. Um, But he's caught between a rock and a hard place right now.
1: Yeah. uh, Lori Ingram on her show, the conservative host, uh, said that it was a bad deal and no Republican should vote for it last night. Hannity said uh, that it was garbage, called the deal garbage. Leo, what what the Republicans do get in return, though, is uh, a backing off by Democrats from a proposal they'd initially tried to make sure it could be part of this deal. And that was they wanted to restrict the number of beds, but read into that people who could be detained at any one time by ICE. And uh, the Democrats backed off from that a bit. There is a number, but it's not as low as Democrats had hoped.
0: Yeah, I think the Democrats um, are looking at that and they see for themselves that this makes it look as though they're soft on um You know, dealing with the fact that you do have undocumented people who are being detained, who you don't know a whole lot about, and that that would mean that some of those people may end up in your backyard or somewhere. So, I mean, they don't want to be seen as soft on that. You know, another thing. I, I I I want to be clear on this. I think the Democrats are missing in this deal. Also, the DACA deal that Trump earlier offered. So so Democrats and Republicans have had some loss here. If I understand that, is that right, Professor? Well,
1: the President offered DACA. I mean, a deal and a half ago. This was quite a while. Yeah, back. and
4: and I think there was great skepticism about whether, in fact, they were going to ever uh, offer DACA because it was it became clear after um, when, when that initial offer was made that that was only conditioned on the significant changes in the immigration laws that would have reduced legal immigration. So that's where the Democrats backed off from that. And, and I, don't, I don't think there was ever any thought that there was going to be a DACA deal as part of this agreement.
1: So they have to do it by midnight on Friday mm-hmm. night, uh, Lori, And it's going to be interesting to see if the president tries to go to Mitch McConnell in the Senate and say, look. I'm not going to sign this unless you add this, this, and this to whatever your final bill is going to look like.
3: Yeah, I mean, this is where we hear about the art of the deal, right? <laughs> and um, we know that the president wants to add things, of course. And the other point, though, that I could see the Republicans trying to spin here is that, you know, for how many weeks over this shutdown did we hear Nancy Pelosi say absolutely no funding for a wall, wall, wall? And now we're seeing at least there is for a border Barrier. So <laughs> even though they might be getting not as much as they would have in the original deal, there is a way for Republicans to kind of spin out of this.
2: Right. Well, we have way. We have Tom Graves, who is the only Georgian on the on the in the conference it, committee That's has right. reservations. But here's my favorite thing is reported by uh, Tamar in Washington, our reporter Tamar Hollerman. Earlier in the day, David Perdue indicated he would wait
1: to hear from Trump before announcing his position. Yeah, uh, <laughs> Well, and we'll see exactly how that uh, all comes down. Let's listen to Tom Graves. Uh, Before the deal was reached, uh, Graves was interviewed about where the, uh, the conference committee appeared to be headed. And one of the questions he was asked was, if there's no deal or if the deal doesn't give Trump what he wants, would Graves support the president taking independent action of some sort to come up with border funding?
2: I think the president's right to have contingency plans in place. He's given Congress time to do their work, and uh, as you've mentioned before, the speaker had said, just open the government and uh, negotiations would continue, and uh, that effort has been there. And uh, we don't really see, I guess, something uh, coming to a conclusion here in the next day or so. He's going to have to have some plans in place. But I'm really pleased with uh, Chairman Yarmouth and and, uh, the work he's done in the past, and it's guys like him that I hope can help influence his leadership to bring this to a conclusion that we can all support and that the president can sign.
1: Okay, that was Tom Graves yesterday. As Kevin just told us today, he's uh, uh, going to be a little bit cautious about whether he will uh, vote for this. So let's talk about the broader political consequences of this. For, for the president, as he approaches a re-election campaign, and also for Georgia Republicans in the congressional right. delegation. Alan? <laughs> well, I think, first of
4: all, that this is a big loss for the president. And there's, there's, you know, you can spin it any way you want, but he got less than he could have gotten originally. There's no wall in the sense that Trump defined a wall, no funding for that kind of a wall. Uh, the amount of money that's being uh, provided for a board of fencing is much less than, than what he wanted. And he's going to have to sign off on this. I don't see any way that he doesn't sign off on this because then we're going into another government shutdown. And... The first shutdown was a disaster for Republicans. Um, the polling all showed that his approval rating sank. Uh, it really hurt the party. A long term, I think this is you know a bad uh, a, a situation for the Republican Party nationally and even in Georgia. So I mean, I just think I just think it's been a terrible it's a terrible decision and a terrible outcome for him.
1: Leo, is there distance between Trump voters and let's focus on Georgia to the extent we can? Is there a distance between Trump voters and the conservative commentators out there? In other words, if the Rush Limbaugh's, uh, the Hannity's of the world, the Ingram's of the world, tell people that uh, Trump's made a bad deal here, are the voters of the Republican voters who supported Trump, uh, is there a distance between them and the commentators or do the commentators help them think about how they ought to vote next time around?
0: the Republican voters that support Donald Trump evaluate what he offers to them in an entirely different way than, say, professors or academics or anybody else, for that matter, evaluates this situation. They're looking at the big picture, the spirit of what he's saying. So if they get $1.3 billion, they're going to say he got the wall. He got $55 million of a big, shiny wall, however you want to decide. They're happy with that because of the spirit of the of this issue. That's what we keep underestimating about the Trump voters. They are going to be happy with him in the long run. Even one of the most conservative commentators in the nation um, who was a never Trumper back in the last election cycle uh, has said that he's supporting uh, uh, Donald Trump. in 2020. Eric Erickson. Erickson. So, so, so (laughs) I, you know, we don't understand the Trump voters even today. We still don't understand them. They will be fine.
3: Well, I just read at a poll that, what, 80 percent of Republicans support Trump. Now, I don't take a lot of stock in polls. But um, the other part of this is that you have to remember, this is the one issue. He came out down that escalator on, like, first day, day one. And a lot of people credit this issue to propelling him to the White House. So I think Republicans will say, you know, a lot of them, not all of them, will say, you know, we're glad he stood firm. I mean, this was the issue that we voted him in. This is why, you know, we we're okay with a shutdown as long as he stood his ground.
2: I keep wondering about this because I'm interested, Leo, in your perspective, because I do think you're right about understanding Trump voters and and what they think about versus what all the rest of uh, the political chattering class thinks about. The Republicans really did. They didn't exact in Congress, didn't exactly abandon the president. But for the first time, Mitch McConnell made clear, you know, this is a bad plan, Mr. President, and don't don't think we can make this work. Do you think they did that because they figure, well, you know, they may they got to get a deal done because a shutdown really hurts them and a shutdown will not get Trump voters. Trump can own a shutdown because his voters right. won't
0: abandon them no right. matter what. They right? won't. Yeah. And I think that's exactly why you also heard Lindsey Graham say, yeah, do the emergency. Declare. I mean, he Lindsey Graham was encouraging the declaration of an emergency. It's sort of like, OK, I'm mom, I'm dad. Let's get Auntie to make a decision on what happens I think here. you're right about that.
2: <laughs> I think declaring an emergency, again, when you think about the Trump voter, and I'd like to know what you guys think. So then what happens? He gets in a big fight with Congress and or he
4: goes to court. <clears throat> right. And
2: even if he loses, he wins with his voters. Right. Yeah, yeah, because he's, here's
4: the he's fighting the swamp. Here's the thing about that. The Trump base isn't enough to get him reelected, okay? When you've got a 40% approval rating, which is roughly probably where he's been you know, recently, that's, I mean, he's been underwater for virtually his entire presidency. Right now, he's about 15 points underwater. You've got 55% of the American electorate, more or less, who are saying they're not going to vote for him, that they definitely wouldn't vote for him for a second term. He's in big trouble. And we just had an election in which his party was repudiated, and he was repudiated. He went out around the country supporting Republican candidates made it into a referendum on Donald Trump, and the Republicans lost 40 seats in the House of Representatives. They lost the popular vote for the House by 10 million votes, right, by almost nine percentage points, the biggest margin in many, many years. So that was a disastrous election, and now they're looking ahead to 2020, and they're facing the potential for another terrible result if he doesn't turn things around. He's got to get that approval number up a lot closer to 50%, He's going to have a shot to get reelected. No incumbent and president has gotten reelected with an approval number. Anywhere near where he is today,
1: and he's never been. Uh, he's one of the, I think, I, I, historically only. the only president who has never reached fifty percent approval in never. his. Uh... But he believes Howard
2: Schultz is going to come through for him, and he's that's what.
3: Let's not on the on Counting on Howard here. Schultz, I mean, he's a non-politician <laughs> that right. got elected president. I, also, so I, there's a lot of firsts with Donald Trump. Yeah, yeah.
0: I, I think to try and judge him based on all other presidents is just is folly.
3: All right, so let's keep this
1: conversation going. Lori, I think that Kevin <laughs> Riley is onto to something here. It was interesting the other day to watch the dynamic in the still Republican controlled Senate. Finally, the majority leader, Mitch McConnell, said, let the chips fall where they may, essentially. Remember that before the shutdown, McConnell was uh, burned when he thought he'd struck a deal to keep the government open with 1.56 billion, whatever, for border Mm -hmm. security. And Trump seemed to agree to it then backed off because of all the conservative backlash. Okay, but now McConnell jumps back in. And he and the House leadership say, okay, let the tr- let the president do what he does. We have to get back to the business of, to some extent, regular order, work out our own compromise here, and then let the president—that's mm-hmm. up to the president. It's the first time I think it's fair to say that has happened. In part, it's probably happened because we now have a House controlled by Democrats, and I think it— portends an interesting next year until the election for president trump
3: right and also for republicans and republican <laughs> voters yeah. i mean who were who who were they going to side with um but i think also this is kind of also a moving target for republicans in the senate um you know trump will come out and say one thing and then three days later he completely flips and there was no deal so i um, i think it was barry loudermilk congressman barry loudermilk has said you know it's hard to negotiate with somebody who you don't know where he is and perhaps that's where we are again i mean Trump is saying, hey, maybe on this, but maybe we'll avoid a-, a shutdown. But then again, tomorrow he may change his mind.
1: Leo, the president won Georgia by five points. Not not a lot compared to past uh, performances by presidential candidates in the state. Uh, how much trouble is he possibly going to be in if you take what Alan says about uh, a president uh, – well, the problem is his approval numbers here are much higher than they are. Not, among- they're not great. Well, you're mm-hmm. right. They're not as a matter but, of fact. But, the,
0: you know, the bigger – the trouble that he's in in Georgia is – not so much how he dealt with the border wall deal, it is because Georgia Democrats really have a stronger operation than Georgia Republicans right now. And that's just a fact. I mean, the Stacey Abrams movement, um, the the action of the, the, the Democrat voters to create the kind of leadership that they now have uh, in place, um, they're just stronger. Whereas Georgia is looking at John Watson retiring, not going to run again as chairman and a very small staff, a very short budget. I mean, that those are greater. No minority engagement strategy in the Georgia GOP right now. Um, that Those are bigger issues for the Georgia Republican
1: and, Party. OK, thank you. I took a deep breath when I was thinking about what I said about the approval numbers. And I remember now that the AJC had Trump underwater in Georgia, I think just a little. I think he was at maybe 48, 49 percent. I don't have your polling numbers in front of me, Kevin, but... He's struggling here, too, Alan.
4: He is. And so uh, you know, there, there have been a bunch of polls in this state over the last couple of years that have shown that his numbers are a little better. We, than,
1: only, we only
4: talk about the AJC's <laughs> polls. <this> consistent, <laughs> Just to be clear. <laughs> but it's good that your results are consistent with most of these others. So they're not out of line. So what do uh, we
1: expect? All right. So uh, uh, on, the, on the Sunday shows, uh, his acting chief of staff, Mick Mulvaney, uh, started giving hints about what the president could do this week uh, if he didn't get the money. And so far, he hasn't gotten it. And they're talking about shifting money from two Army Corps of Engineer flood control projects in northern California. Goodness knows the president would never want to do anything to hurt California, would he? Uh, And also from disaster relief funds intended for California and Puerto Rico. Uh, They also are looking at unspent Department of Defense funds for military construction, uh, family housing, infrastructure on military bases, of course. If they go that direction, it, what's the political damage of some of
4: that? I, I think it would be a disaster. Um, first of all, that we challenged in court. I don't know if he has the legal authority to even do that. Um, but even if they can do it, I mean, you can imagine what the, what the repercussions are going to be. I
2: mean, I know by conventional thinking, there's, your, your position is unassailable. I mean, I, I know that. But look at what he has done. So what will happen here? That he'll, that he tries to do that, then he gets challenged in court. Yeah. Then he gets in a big fight. It yeah. just endears him more. And if you're gonna get in a fight, he, that's California's a state he's never gonna win yeah, anyway. It's not
4: just California though. I mean, they'd be having to take money from other places too. And I, I think it's 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 not just a question of uh, I mean, sort of, he doesn't care about California. We we, we know uh-huh. that. Um, but the the problem he has is he you know he can't just win by playing to his base, and that's all he's doing. He's shown no ability or even willingness or or interest in trying to expand that base and reach out beyond it, which is different from every other recent president. When presidents get in trouble politically, they try to change their strategy and figure out a different approach to try to expand their base and reach out beyond it. That's what— Trump needs to do, but he doesn't know how to do it, and he doesn't even have any interest in doing it.
0: There are are wedge issues and tropes that sound as though he's playing to his base, but he has an economic agenda. He has a a body of work that plays to a greater audience than his base, And, and when his time is right, he'll bring it out.
3: And I I want to say also, and I, I know we're going to talk about this later in the show, but it also depends on who the Democratic nominee is. Mm. If it's somebody who's really far to the left and some of these moderates don't want to go in that direction, are they stuck? And are they stuck with the decision? Is it Trump or is it, you know, more of a liberal Democrat?
1: You know, it's interesting. We have to get to a break. But, Leo Smith, uh, for a while in your appearances on this show, I was convinced— You were thinking about becoming a Democrat. I am very happy to hear you today because you're squarely still a Republican.
0: Oh, I have been exposed.
1: (laughs) That's Leo Smith, who is one of our panelists today on Political Rewind. We're going to take a quick break and come back with a lot more. Financial contributions from listeners like you are not the only gifts that keep GPB on the air. In fact, many listeners have already chosen to donate a used vehicle to GPB. We'll pick up your vehicle for free and send you the paperwork for your taxes. Get started today. Call 877-GPB-1-CAR or go to gpb.org slash cars. That's 877-GPB-1-CAR or gpb.org slash cars. And thanks.
0: Psychologists who study school shooters say they often have a lot in common. People that do these kinds of targeted attacks don't feel very good about themselves. They don't feel very good about their accomplishments. They don't feel good about their social sets or where they're headed in their life. How that despair can transform into anger and a desire to hurt others. This afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News.
1: 4 till 7 on GPB and gpbnews.org. Welcome back to Political Rewind. Uh, If you're listening to us in real time, it's Tuesday, February 12th. It's Abraham Lincoln's birthday. Uh, And uh, it's also the day, uh, thanks to our friend Todd Rehm, who told us this in his political newsletter this morning, uh, it's also the day that uh, President Clinton was acquitted by the United States Senate of the charges of impeachment against him, so... Big day in political presidential yeah. uh, history today. Alan uh, Abramowitz <laughs> from Emory University, Leo Smith, Lori Geary, and uh, it's Tuesday, which means Kevin Riley, the editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, is here. You have a big story for us, Kevin. You're replacing the obscene cartoonist <laughs> with with. Uh, well, we're this is not final, but I think it's safe to say that uh, we're
2: going to do all we can. Uh, we will. Uh, replaced that, the exorcised comic strip by a, with a strip called Mike Dejour, And that strip is done by a guy named Mike Lester, who's a native Georgian, has lots of friends in Atlanta, and tells
1: us that his real first job was at the Atlanta Journal. Wow. You heard it here first. Breaking news every time we come on the air. Eleanor Bromowitz, let's uh, go to, <clears throat> excuse me, a little more on presidential politics. Howard Schultz, the founder of Starbucks, in fact, is uh, touring the United States, promoting his newest book. And he'll be in Georgia next month. I think it's interesting that he's chosen Atlanta as one of the cities he's going to come into. It tells us a little bit about perhaps Georgia having some relevance for the first time in a long time in the 2020 cycle. And here's why I wanted to turn to you on this, because the conventional wisdom has been and Democrats have been urging Schultz to not get right. into the race. They think he will cut into the uh, Democratic base. Right. You're not convinced that's true. No, well, I think there are two things, uh, three things about
4: Schultz. One, I'm still skeptical that he's going to run um, because in, to, to really run a presidential campaign, run a serious campaign, he's going to have to make a big commitment, not just of time, but of money. Uh, it's going to be very expensive because I don't see very many people giving him money. Um, So he's going to spend a lot of his own money if he's going to do this. But if he does run, he's also not going to draw anywhere near the kind of vote that, you know, Ross Perot got in 92 or even 96. So, you know, recent third party uh, candidates have been gotten at most three percent. That was the libertarian last time. I I don't see him getting more than one or two percent of the vote, to be honest with you. There's just a reluctance for people to waste their vote on a third party and thereby help. The party that you detest. So that's what you have to understand about our politics today. I want to stick with you for one more
1: question. Schultz's argument is that there are now more independents than Democrats or Republicans, uh, people who say they are independents (laughs) rather than Republicans or Democrats. But he's confusing something, isn't he?
4: Well, first of all, yeah, it's very misleading. So there are a lot of people who call themselves independents, but if you just you know, probe a little bit further, you find that the large majority of them are really partisans. Right. Um, they're what I call them closet partisans. So and they vote. They're just as loyal to the party. And, and their views on the issues are, are, are very similar to those of, of the partisans that they a party they lean toward. Um, and if you look at behavior, which I think is more relevant here, uh, what you find is that we're in an era right now of very strong partisanship. So party loyalty and voting is at record levels. Uh, ticket splitting is at the lowest levels we've seen in in decades. Um, the, record, the relationship between how people vote, you know, for president, house, senate, all the way down, is is much stronger than than it's ever been. You know, look at what happened in Georgia. You know, in, in last year we saw, you know, the, the percentage of the vote that Republican and Democratic candidates get is so similar when you go down the ballot. I mean, there's just a slight. Variation from race to race, except occasionally when, for some reason, a lot of voters don't vote in a particular race for whatever reason that we don't understand. Um, so, uh, so I think if if Schultz runs, he won't get very many votes. And he's also the way he's positioning himself as a centrist independent, um, sort of conservative on fiscal issues, liberal on social issues, um, is not going to you know appeal strongly to either side. I mean, he's going to kind of. He might pull a few votes from from both parties. So I, I, I don't see him affecting the outcome very much.
1: I can see, Laurie, <laughs> I can see Abramowitz's next book taking shape. Because, because in many ways, Schultz is a textbook example mm-hmm. of the kind yeah. of thing that, that Abramowitz has pointed mm-hmm. out. People are not in the center mm-hmm. anymore. There is no center. So in many ways, Schultz's entire raison d'etre. For why he at least has told us so far he wants to run. There are independent voters. They're not happy with the two parties. They're more central uh, centrist in their thinking. It it's made of air.
3: Well, I think you only have to look at Georgia. Yeah. Uh, this past election, I mean, there was a time where those independent voters were in the double digits, but they they leaned red in the past twenty years. So Republican. So Georgia went Republican. Um, there were hardly, I think it was, low single digits of people who called themselves independents. And so they weren't even shy about saying I'm a Republican or a Democrat if you kind of dug down into the crosstabs. But I think there are kind of two issues at play here. And I think maybe this is, you know, I don't know where Schultz is coming from on the independent. But if you think about maybe some of the Republican voters and especially women who are saying there's no way I could vote for Donald Trump, and then this is kind of what I alluded to before the break was that. But then if the the Democrats are going so far left that, of course, on that issue of abortion, which is so, so crucial for Republicans, then then do they look at a Schultz and and maybe that's some sort of pathway to get he's, more than one or two well, percent. Yeah,
4: he's, he's pro-choice.
3: But well, it just gives them another perspective. He might be pro-choice, but maybe not. I, I think Trump
2: was left. once pro-choice, you know, yeah, not, but right. I, but so
0: I think Ross re- Perot. I think that I think Republicans see Schultz as a Democrat. I don't think they buy for a second that he's an independent um, and, 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 you and mean just Republican less, voters, Republican voters. Yeah. Right. And, and and as a matter of fact, I think that he is a liberal Democrat. He I just mean, doesn't know he's a Democrat. Well, is that what he's, you're it's, it's gimmicky. <laughs> um, sometimes like, oh, no. He, no, you know, I was at an event that was with um, African-American civil rights leaders last month during the King celebrations. He was at one of them. He spoke. Um, that crowd did not see him as an independent. They saw him as a liberal Democrat. His whole race thing that he did in his stores was the effort of a progressive liberal trying to figure it out. Um, he's a Democrat.
4: Well, I don't think he's running. As, he's not running as a Democrat. I, I want to come back on this, this point about what happens if the Democrats nominate a candidate who's too far to the left. Will that hurt their chances? You know, and and, and at some point it will. But, you know, uh, I think that's overrated. Uh, I mean, I think the, the importance of who they nominate is being overstated. It doesn't matter that much who the Democrats nominate, frankly, uh, because the anti-Trump sentiment is so strong among Democratic voters that they're going to vote for anyone. And, OK, look what happened in Georgia last year, right? OK, Stacey Abrams was more liberal than any candidate the Democrats have nominated for statewide office in Georgia in forever, Right. And she came closer than any other Democratic candidate for statewide office has come to winning since back in the day when, you know, we had Roy Barnes, you know, since he, right. the last time he got elected. So she came within one and a half points of winning that election in a midterm year. We know the turnout's going to be much greater in 2020 than it was in 2018, although it was very high for a midterm. So I think if Stacey Abrams can do that well, she's an African-American woman running a on a rather progressive platform right and she did that well you've got to think that democrats are going to have a shot at winning or at least competing for the electoral votes of georgia and for the senate seat in Georgia in 2020
1: this is why we used to go talk to ellen abramowitz as reporters
4: Right. right. <laughs> yes.
3: Well, I will say, too, I'm I mean, not saying it all they're going to win the, Georgia, but, but I'm it all goes out gonna... the window if Joe Biden puts his name in the hat. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Well, what do you mean? Why? Because he's more moderate. I mean,
0: he's not as. Oh, left yeah. As but some I mean,
4: he, 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 if Joe Biden puts his hat in the ring, he's not guaranteed of winning
0: the nomination. So what about no, what, if, what, if, what if Hillary Clinton jumped in the run against Trump again? I mean, is, you, I Hillary mean, do... Clinton came within five points of Trump. Okay. In so you think Hillary could beat him?
4: No, she's not going to run again. All right, no, let me, me let me move. Hillary f- Clinton is not running. <laughs> uh, not one Democrat I've ever heard from wants her to run. It probably still has a few supporters out there in the in the All public. Right. But
1: let me move the conversation <clears throat> forward a little bit, Kevin. Uh, the last time we had a significant independent candidate for president, right? Uh, Howard Schultz may or may not get into this thing, and boy, the blowback he's gotten from Democrats and Republicans about jumping in has been significant. He may be paying attention to that he may not. Ross Perot, 1992. In 92, Perot won uh, 19 million votes Uh, and uh, he campaigned. um, The New York Times did a piece about him right (laughs) after the election that year. He campaigned in only 16 states, but he got more than 20 percent of the vote in 31 states and, and, and I think you could say well give me your response to the Perot phenomenon back in ninety two and then I want to talk about Georgia. Well, I mean it was a remarkable thing
2: and he also didn't he he suspended his campaign yeah, and at he dropped out for back. a couple months yeah. Yeah. and came yeah, back. Yeah, it was the craziest campaign was, uh, ever. <laughs> and, he, and he did those long commercials and he had that funny way of talking and you know and all that stuff. Yeah, his chart. it, charts—just oh, yeah.
1: amazing stuff. I like that. I like charts. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> of course you do. All right. So, it, it, Alan, it does strike me, and then I want to get everybody else in here, that you might make the case that Ross Perot's presence on the general election ballot in Georgia may vary. Zell Miller loved to have he used to <laughs> loved to brag that he got your, uh, Bill Clinton elected. President and won him the state of Georgia in an early primary that propelled Clinton forward.
3: And Bill Clinton liked to say that. And too. Clinton
1: loved to say that. you're you're exactly But there right, was a Super Florida. Tuesday that Georgia was part of. That's no, right. no, what? it wasn't. It was. Clinton. But Georgia was
4: a separate primary.
1: It? it was separate. Oh, was it? Okay, yeah. moved up earlier. Yeah. I, I mean, to... I, the, I get. I can give you the quick story. And <laughs> why I think, not? Why not? But Clinton did uh, very
4: well across the whole South.
1: Clinton in the primaries.
4: In the, in the primaries.
1: Str- Clinton struggled in New Hampshire. Yeah, We think of him, the phrase that Carville used after New Hampshire, mm-hmm. the comeback kid. The reality is, after all of the Donna Flowers stuff about Clinton fooling Jennifer around. Flowers. I mean, Jennifer Flowers, thank you. Uh, <laughs> Who could forget? He came in third in the New Hampshire primary. But earlier in the year, uh, in fact, at the turn of – when the legislature first went into session in 92 – Zell Miller went to the legislature and moved up the date of the Georgia primary ahead of Super Tuesday because he wanted to propel Clinton forward, thinking perhaps it would revive a campaign should anything go wrong in New Hampshire, which is why Miller takes credit. But here's the reality. Once you got to the general election, it certainly helped Clinton in the primary. It may have been the reason he was nominated. It it moved him forward. But in the general election— Clinton won Georgia with 43.47% of the vote. George H.W. Bush, the incumbent president, had forty-two point eight eight percent. Being very precise here. Well, because and Perot got thirteen and a half percent. Clinton won the state by thirteen thousand seven hundred and fourteen votes. Right. I don't think there's much question that the independent on the on that ballot uh delivered georgia for clinton that could very well be uh nationally i think perot um
4: probably took just about as many votes from uh, clinton and bush i don't think there was a big difference but in georgia he may very well have taken you know, in, in more votes from uh, from from uh bush um but, but howard schultz is not going to get uh anywhere near the vote that ross perot got in in, in 1992 nationally or in georgia um, as I said, he'll be lucky to get 1% or 2% of the vote.
2: Uh, and that's just, just a change in the political world. It is. Right. Well, that's what I wanted
3: to ask Alan since he's mm-hmm. in academia is <laughs> – I was a little younger when Perot was running.
4: You had to bring that up. <laughs> Someone, so was, going trying, there, Someone uh, was going there, Bill. So Someone was going there. You're old enough to remember this. I'm old so. enough to remember.
3: However, okay. I was just wondering because we were talking so much about how there are no more independents left really in, in the U.S. But what was what was the perception of independence back well, then? What it was
4: different. So, um, yeah, well, I am old enough to remember, <laughs> to remember 1992 pretty well. Um, yeah, things were different back then. Um, you had, uh, more voters who were willing to cross party lines, for one thing. There was more ticket splitting, a lot more ticket splitting even then, although it already started to come down. Um, and, uh, so an independent candidate could draw support from voters who normally voted for either Republicans or Democrats. Um, the hostility toward the opposing party that we see today... Mm -hmm among not just identifiers, but even those who lean toward a party also share that same hostility. The reason they lean toward a party in many cases is because they hate the other party. Right. Um, so they're, again, they're reluctant to uh, to vote for a candidate, uh, an independent candidate, if they think that by doing so they're going to be actually helping the party they really detest or the candidate from that party. is
1: it that strike you to some extent as counterintuitive, Laurie? Because all, because every poll that we see mm-hmm. says that Americans are disen, disenchanted with their with their elected officials with what's happening in Washington, whatever. And yet, when it comes down to election, party loyalty uh, prevails.
3: Well, I think Alan hit it. It's not just party loyalty, but it's you don't want the the other, the other party side. to win. Yeah, well, that's always because a you yes. hate them so badly. But anyway, look, yeah. at the
4: same time, uh, you know, re- the large majority of Republican voters. Uh, Approve of Trump, uh, and and in fact something like 60 percent I think strongly approve of Trump. On the other side, among Democrats, you know almost 90 percent disapprove of Trump, and you know 80 percent plus strongly disapprove of Trump. So we have these very intense feelings on both sides of this. Um, there is strong support for your own party. Again, you may call yourself an independent who leans Democratic, but those independent Democrats, again, are very loyal. Uh, those independent Republicans are very loyal to their party. And, you know, it comes down to really in, in a lot of elections, what it comes down to nowadays is who
1: shows up. Leo, I want to get you in here before we take a break.
0: No, I was my whole memory lane thing. There <laughs> is just Things have changed so much. I mean, memory lane back in those days, we did not have social media. We did not have the ability to, to people through social media to get people to rallies the way that we do now or to take a trope and make a whole movement out of it. Things are just so different than back in those days that uh, certainly I don't think it's easy to compare science that way.
1: All right, let's do this. Let's get our final break of the show out of the way because we've got a lot I'd still love to get to with this panel. You're listening to Political Rewind. We'll be right back. All
3: On right. the next Fresh Air, how the brain responds and adapts to certain drugs and alcohol leading to addiction. We talk with Judith Grizel, author of Never Enough, The Neuroscience and Experience of Addiction. She's a neuroscientist who studies addiction, and she's a recovering addict who's been sober 30 years. Join us.
1: Fresh air is this afternoon at 3 on GPB and gpbnews.org.
2: Touchdown, John Nelson here from GPB Sports, reminding you that in Georgia, the four seasons are not winter, spring, summer, and fall. It is football, spring football, Cruton, and National Signing Day. On the Football Fridays in Georgia podcast, we'll tell you the stories on and off the field. Subscribe at gpb.org forward slash sports and wherever your favorite podcasts are found.
4: It'll only be for Here a year, we go. We're back on uh, Political Rewind.
1: We're still ca- uh, talking. And uh, one of the reasons that we're talking is because uh, during a break, Alan Abramowitz <laughs> said, there's a big story we haven't talked about <laughs> yet. University of Georgia just signed Anthony Edwards, who's called Ant-Man. Right. <laughs> number one, not football prospect in the country, Alan. Well, that wouldn't be surprising no. at all. <laughs> Top. Basketball. What the <laughs> heck is happening? <laughs> Well, George has been
4: down in basketball for quite a while. Oh, yes, they and, have. And uh, you know, back in the day when they had Dominique Wilkins, they were pretty good. But uh, it's been a while. So Play, he's played
1: at. Uh, he's been playing at Holy Spirit Prep, uh, and uh, he's going to the uh, University of Georgia. Of course, Kevin. Uh, your own sports uh, reporting today points out that uh, he'll probably be there for six months yeah. because this guy is so good. He'll be in the NBA. <laughs> before he's
4: very he's long. already projected to be the top, <laughs> top draft, draft pick track. in the NBA <laughs> yeah. draft in like 2021 or whenever he would be finishing his yeah. or 2020 whatever. Whenever. Whatever. Uh, <laughs> freshman, end of his freshman year. <laughs> well,
2: who knows where it might lead? I mean, yeah. a lot of times other prospects will follow a guy like that because That's they're it. trying to put together right. a team that exactly. can get to the Final Four. All, right. all we, of that. We so. just
1: want to show you we have we, we have <laughs> exactly. nothing we can't cover uh, <laughs> on the show. Uh, okay, uh, Lori Geary, we're going to take a few issues that we're going to move through a little bit more rapidly because uh, you're you're a panel. I really want to get opinions from. We have five women. Now running for the Democratic nomination for president. One of them, Elizabeth Warren, is coming to uh, metro Atlanta. I think she can be in Lilburn uh, over the weekend at a rally um, at a high school, which kind of surprised me. At a public high school, school. yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, But I guess it's a weekend, so maybe it's okay. What's the difference between having one woman, Hillary Clinton, running for president? And all of a sudden, at least five, if not more, who might eventually get in.
3: Well, talk about, you know, breaking that glass ceiling even more. Right. But I think you have to look at the electorate, too. And just the influence of women. Trump lost women by 13 percent. So we know he's in trouble with women. So if there is a strong woman on that Democratic ticket, it makes a big difference. Yeah. I, I
4: look th- at the midterm uh, elections. I mean, exactly. A record look at me at number Congress, of women elected. Right. Record number, which even Trump, well, I'm curious, Trump mentioned
2: it.
3: Right, but all I'm, of them in white. Yes. What I'm curious Most about
2: is how the campaign shapes up, because as you know, when you get into things like debates and stuff like that, I mean, there is always this question about how a man should handle a woman in a one-on-one debate or in a debate. Now, if you have a field of women, it'll be very interesting to see how that plays out, if it's the normal free-for-all right. or if it's somehow— different. I mean, it's yeah. yeah. true. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah.
3: Do they support one another? Um, right. you don't know, right. have that dynamic
0: is. Right. From Cory Booker to whomever, I think it would be very tough to really give a Trump-like challenge to those women without well, being... Well, especially in a Democratic being, primary. Right. I primary very tough. Yeah, I mean, you, you wouldn't be allowed <laughs> to do that. And so, But I, I think Amy Klobuchar is really the one that Republicans would be concerned about um, as a seasoned politician. who Midwesterner, really Minnesota Mid-Westerner, senator, yeah, very,
1: right. very popular. Right. How about help? that
2: announcement where she just stood in that driving snowstorm <laughs> right. for yeah. well, a long well, right. right. I was I
1: impressed. impressed. Yeah. Women. All right. So, but we're already seeing some of these, the tropes. Developing. Uh, so, uh, Amy Klobuchar, the, there are news reports now that she's mean to her staff. Right. That she's treated many of them badly, that she's had high turnover. You know, and, you know, maybe that's just fair to talk about in and of itself, but most of us have been around politicians for a long time. And we know there are a lot of people, men in elective office, who are so. Awful to their staff, are angry, yell, scream, and we never hear that about men. No, because men. they
3: appear powerful, right? And they're called powerful, and what are we called?
1: <clears throat> In fact,
2: for the men, B-word, it's right? it's part of the myth-making. I mean, yeah. Lyndon yes. Johnson and it's how notoriously nasty he was to his staff was just part of the legend. Even Winston Churchill, as portrayed in recent movies, yeah. he treats everyone like crap and somehow that's like really and, and
3: on, and something. And so beyond I mean, look what Hillary Clinton was portrayed as, right? right. But, I mean, but that's... Amy
0: Klobuchar standing there, Lori. Yes. Strong, With the snowstorm blowing behind her, it looked like something from Game of Thrones. And she, she was amazing yeah. there. Yeah. That was a great, that was a great uh, as, a
4: that, photo op. As, you know, as I, opposed to although I, Trump to, did take a but, shot at her. Oh, of course. Yeah. But the thing that strikes me—that's uh, that's the most interesting about the Democratic race uh, for 2020—is aside from just how many candidates are, are jumping into the race because they think Trump is going to be vulnerable—is that um, you know we're going to—they—they—they they, they range across the ideological spectrum. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got you've got Bernie Sanders, assuming that he runs uh, Elizabeth Warren. uh, And now, you know, uh, Kamala Harris, Mm -hmm. Kamala Harris and and Cory Booker are all kind of positioning themselves kind of on the left there. And some some of them didn't used to be that far to the left.
2: Alan, do you think having mm -hmm. such a big field means good things or bad things for the Democrats? Because we watch what happened with Hillary Clinton. Yeah, (laughs) I mean, almost as soon as Obama won Right. The second term, she was, she was assumed to be the right. next nominee right. and, and, and over and, time. And, it, and, that,
4: and so what happened was Bernie was the only one who was who was willing to take her on, you know, and so he kind of had the uh, the, the left wing of the Democratic Party of the electorate, Democratic primary electorate, all to himself. Right. And that's not going to be true this time. You know, if, if Bernie does run, he's going to have a lot of competition out there. Uh, he's got a competition for Elizabeth Warren for one, but I think also Kamala Harris to some extent, Cory Booker to some extent. And then you've got the kind of more center, you know, I mean, it's center left. It's not, you know, they're not really in the center, but center left, you have, you have, if Joe Biden runs, right. got him there, you've got Klobuchar, who's pretty clearly there. You know, you may have some others, uh, Beto O'Rourke, if he runs, I'm not exactly sure where he is, but he's kind of. He's kind of in the center. He's not on the, on the left. So as he hasn't been.
1: What I find really fascinating about the presence of, of the, this number of women and who knows how many others mm-hmm. may want to jump in is in 20 uh, it, in, it, it, in any presidential race that Hillary Clinton made, there was a binary choice. It was you vote for this person or you vote for the woman. Mm-hmm. She was the woman. And suddenly the presence mm-hmm. of all these women, Lori, strips us. Of that, which in many ways is a victory for women who are in political life.
3: It is, right? And it's such an interesting dynamic, too, because I think Democrats, or I think visually, who do you want to see up on stage debating Donald Trump? You know, and I think maybe it comes down to which woman do you want to see up there debating Donald Trump? Because I think that is going to be one of the most interesting (laughs) debates. And women women
4: did very, very well in democratic primaries. Uh, in 2018 uh, and usually had the advantage when it was a woman versus a man. Um, But I I think the other side of the story here is how badly the Republican Party is doing among women. Mm -hmm. So uh, there's now a record number of women in Congress, but the number of Republican women in Congress actually shrank. They're actually fewer than there were before. Uh, A lot of women are reluctant to run, I think, as Republicans right now. So. Uh, it's really it's really hurting the Republican Party. And I think that it's not just the visuals. I mean, the reality is that Republican Party has a has a problem with women.
1: Leo, it's certainly true that it's harder to recruit rec- uh, women to run as Republicans. We saw that all over the 2018 cycle. Julianne Thompson, a frequent uh, panelist on the show, tried it and was frustrated <laughs> over and over again by that. Let me move on to one last subject. Uh, we didn't do, haven't done much with this. and We're not going to get a lot of time for it today. Uh, the mess in Virginia. Mm. Uh, Kevin Riley, you've got Ralph Northam, who was either in blackface or a Klan robe. We're not <laughs> sure which because he still has. And he's told not us. sure which. yeah. The lieutenant governor and uh, accused of uh, sexual assault. The attorney general uh, also wearing uh, blackface. And then you've got but, the leader, the majority leader in the Senate, a Republican who was the yearbook Editor, when they put all these <laughs> photographs the, of people, was a very
2: strategic generic. move by him. Yeah. It's
3: it's just, like it sounded like a movie plot. Yeah, it's hey, well,
0: I'm from Virginia, and I think I don't. I mean, I might be the only Virginia who didn't try blackface. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I'm brown skin, you know. <laughs> so <laughs> it's like um, what, Ellen,
1: <laughs> We've now though seen polling, which tells right. us that Virginia seemed to be split right down the middle right. about Northam whether yeah. he should leave or stay. Right. But African-Americans in Virginia yep. prefer to have him stay in office. Right. right. What do we learn when we see well, something like that? Well, I think, like I think what we
4: learn is that they're making that decision. They're, that's based on their opinion of, of him as governor. They like, for the most part, the way he's governing. Um, his policies, and they voted for him overwhelmingly. So it's not really that surprising. Well,
0: actually, they're in a fight with him about his policies right now. They've been asking. Well, they don't been, like his, abor-
1: his stand on
4: abortion. No, that's no, for no. Sure. And they've
0: also been there's there's some issue of landfills in Virginia happening in black communities that they're in a fight with him. What I think is happening there is that's the strategic mm-hmm. move to have a weak and vulnerable no. uh, guy no, who you not. can negotiate
2: with. Well, I think it might be something mm-hmm. else. I mean, and we sometimes see this in our research at the newspaper. People, no matter what group they're part of, big group, small group, broadly defined or not, they don't like it when someone tells them what to do or how they should think. And I just have this sense that in Virginia, when you look at those poll numbers and you just think about it a little bit, you know— Black people in Virginia in this poll are not demanding he resign, and part of that's got to be don't tell me what to think. Well, national but media, but this is
0: news. Bobby Scott, who is a revered Black Democrat leader in Virginia, got on the radio, and he and other Black leaders said, "You may not want him gone because your other choice would probably be a Republican." Now that we've got all this this casualties right. in the middle, and we can now leverage against him. Right. People actually did that in Virginia.
1: I'm oh. sorry. We're all... Laura, you no, get,
0: it's okay Go we're gonna
1: keep talking even when we're off the air <laughs> well I I we <clears throat> well, are coming close
3: where are you feeling the blackface issue and everybody's kind of divided on that I thought he should have resigned after the press conference because that was that uh, was a most, that I, was I an
1: just, incredible disaster
4: I
3: was screaming well, just is, stop, he, talking if, yeah, I mean, stop talking yeah stop talking
4: the bigger problem not, not just the blackface issue but the way he handled it and <sighs> the fact that that he doesn't didn't come across as truthful
1: right. yeah he did tell yeah. face the nation he number one mm-hmm. in the news conference he seemed about to, to moonwalk Except that his <laughs> wife jumped in and it made it clear know, he, thank that God, would be a stupid wife, thing to do. In. And yeah. he called right. slavery indentured servitude to unface the nation. This you know, mm-hmm. so this notion that we're gonna learn or about him. how to move forward with civil <laughs> rights. But I, think, but
4: I think you're right about one thing is that there's a sense now that he's sort of indebted uh to African American voters uh in the state of Virginia and he's gonna have to right. now, you know, make sure that he... he Right. Maintains that support. I,
1: I, I got to interrupt real quick because uh, Tom Faust and Robert Jimison just sent me an important update. If you've been following the 21 Savage story, because oh, we yes. had Chuck Cook <laughs> on our show last Friday <laughs> talking about 21 Savage, Ch- Chuck is representing him uh, in the effort to deport him. Cook could not get him out of jail. He missed the Grammys on Sunday night. He was nominated for two awards. And we've <clears> just <throat> learned that, in fact, Cook has finally won the battle and has got 21 Savage released on bail. Whatever you think about 21 Savage or undocumented residents, and, we've been following the story easy closely. About to to,
4: to uh, run for president on the Democratic
1: side. <laughs> <team. laughs> <laughs> That's Helen it's Leo Smith, Lori Geary, Kevin Riley. Thanks for being with us. We're back tomorrow at 2. Friday, Chris Carr, the Attorney General of Georgia, is going to be with us. We're looking forward to that show, too. See you tomorrow at 2.